Hello there. Welcome to Faith and Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Real quick, I wanted to let everyone know that we launched a Patreon, so if you'd like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash faithandcapital. Thanks, everyone. All right, so uh, we've been doing this Blind Faith series for a while now, and this is going to be our second to last one. But just to briefly recap, this whole series has been based on the reality that capitalism reproduces itself by getting the vast majority of working peoples in capitalist societies to subscribe to beliefs and internalize assumptions that are then naturalized and normalized. These widely held beliefs are either unconsciously accepted, influencing our everyday without our being aware of them, or are consciously internalized as simply the way things are. And the problem is not that capitalism offers a particular worldview and way of understanding things. Every society and community does that. The problem is that it renders many of these beliefs and perspectives as unquestionable and untouchable. And on the rare occasion someone does question these indisputable truths, they are quickly told to submit and obey or are silenced and shut down. For example, a few episodes ago, we probed at the belief that employers are paid for all their work. Could you imagine if a large portion of working peoples in capitalist societies realize that they get back less than what they put in and have absolutely no say about it? In another episode, we questioned the popular idea that a rising tide, right, a booming economy lifts all boats. Because capitalism concentrates both wealth and power, it may create rising tides, but these tides are waters that tend to raise the yachts of the few while shaking, even drowning, the shabby rafts of the many. And we question these divinized and naturalized assumptions in remembrance of Jesus, whom Paul referred to as Christ crucified. Rather than simply accepting the way things are, as taught to him, as was taught to him by the religious authorities of his day, who instructed obedience to the political and economic elite and compliance to the status quo systems of oppression and exploitation, Jesus seems to have questioned much of the common wisdom about power, about wealth, and about why there was so much unjust suffering in the world. He seems to have questioned those truths labeled indisputable. And he came to see the lived realities of the impoverished and the excluded, even the political, economic, and religious structures of power, very differently than those of considerable power would have had. Still, a difference of perspective would have been fine, but Jesus seems to have believed that the concerns and desires of his God problematized the structures of violence that concentrated both wealth and power into the hands of the few at the expense of the many. Roman political, economic, and military domination, as well as the religious elite's support of it, did not align with the desires of his God. And in his unwillingness to conform, Jesus' organizing and resistance, his faithfulness, led him to die the death of a political criminal 
an agitator, a genuine threat to the peace of Rome. But first, at some point along his journey, he and his non-conforming Jewish faith community had to have questioned the unquestionable. And that is what this whole Blind Faith series has been about, questioning the truths we've been handed, the truths we are often told must not be disagreed with. Because blind trust in these normalized assumptions is one way the vast majority living in capitalist societies remain excluded from democratic power and subordinate to the interests of the elite. And so, today's common assumption, often internalized by the masses, is this. On the rare occasion that a problem is acknowledged, the problem is greed. On the very infrequent chance that something problematic is identified, say something basic like food, healthcare, or housing insecurity, those problems are said to be the result of immoral individual greed. As usual, I want to start off by diving deeper into this widely held belief. And I do this because uh, it's crucial. We are able to understand and articulate the perspectives of those we may or may not disagree with to the point that they would say, yes, that is how I see things. But as you can imagine, the idea that greed is the problem is interpreted in a variety of ways. And with different analyses come different suggested solutions. So we need to identify some of the nuance of the belief that the problem is greed. Then we'll suggest an alternative analysis that locates the problem elsewhere. And finally, we'll finish with some of the implications this alternative perspective might leave us to wrestle with as persons of faith. All right, so it's not uncommon to hear the problem is greed. Why are one in six U.S. American children hungry? Greed. Why are there billionaires when billions of human beings are, are crushed by poverty? Greed. Why is there such drastic wealth inequality in the U.S.? Greed. Why are 16,000 people living in cars in L.A.? Greed. Why are the elderly forced into underfunded facilities unable to provide life-giving and dignified care? Greed. Greed is the problem. But this, <clears throat> excuse me, this popular belief has some nuance to it, right? Some might say that the ultra-rich are greedy. Others might say the quote-unquote middle class is greedy. Still, some suggest that people living in poverty are greedy. And while they all agree that greed is the root problem, they locate the problem in different places and suggest a variety of solutions. For example, when... Someone says that a particular kind of suffering results because people living in poverty are greedy. They usually follow up with a rationale explaining why we should defund welfare programs so that people in poverty can learn to work hard. Their individual greed, because they want to receive welfare funded with taxpayer dollars, is the primary reason why the economy gets out of whack and some people end up poor. Others, and we hear this one a lot around Black Friday and Christmas time from pastors, say that the greed of those who think of themselves as middle class is why we haven't solved world hunger, right? Individuals who self-identify as middle class are just too consumeristic to, uh, to address material suffering. And so in response to this middle class immorality, 
we are encouraged to give to nonprofits and churches doing charity and advocacy work. If individuals of middle-class America, or the church, would be moral by generously donating their money to certain causes, then we could address, maybe even end, certain forms of suffering. And finally, there are those who see the greed of the ultra-rich as the ultimate cause of injustice, inequality, and poverty. But the immoral selfishness of multi-millionaires and billionaires is met with two different kinds of responses. One camp sees moral persuasion as the way forward. If we can either convince or shame the wealthy into giving their money to worthy causes, or maybe if we can persuade their ego toward caring for others, then they could become individual agents of change in our world. Their generosity is the key to global well-being. Yet, another camp says, yes, the wealth that privately belongs to the elite is key, but no, they'll never give it away on their own. So this camp emphasizes institutions of redistribution, systems that tax the ultra-rich and redistribute the wealth they've accumulated through social programs for the rest of us. You can't address the root problem that is human greed, so systems of redistribution are the best, if not only, hope for everyone else. Again, what's important to see here is that for all of these groups, and given their wildly different proposed solutions, they all see the immorality of individual human greed as the fundamental cause of social and economic ill-being. Greed is the problem. However, this is not the only way to think about the problem. Setting aside the redistribution capitalists for a second, when most people say greed is the problem, they are suggesting that the moral decisions and choices of individuals are the deeper causes of our problems. The political and economic systems in which we create and inhabit, the social forces present in our societies, none of these matter. And if they do, they are significantly less influential than the moral and immoral choices made by individual human beings. This perspective stems from a hyper-individualistic and atomistic understanding of God's creation. We're not dynamically persons in community. We're not individuals profoundly shaped and informed within social sites. We're not relational beings in relationship with all things everywhere at all times. Instead, we are autonomous, self-actuated, island-like objects who privately wield our own destinies. To me, this economic hyper-individualism is largely based on bad anthropology, bad sociology, and bad theology. Not only is it false, it's problematic. And while Keynesian-leaning structuralist capitalists, and Keynesianism is just a school of economics named after the economist uh, John Maynard Keynes that arose in response to the Great Depression of the 1930s. All right? So structuralist capitalists and their democratic socialist counterparts discard the hyper-individualism of those who defend free market or neoclassical economics. Their policies reveal to us that they still think individuals should be allowed to produce and accumulate as much private wealth as they possibly can. The only difference is that they, 
the structuralist capitalists and democratic socialists, believe redistribution by way of taxation is the solution to social ills. For them, if greed is the problem, redistribution is the solution, the end game. This latter response, especially in the context of the U.S., is totally a step in the right direction, right? It's a shift from seeing the problem as individual toward the problem as systemic. Yet what if this redistributive approach doesn't go far enough? What if, because it focuses solely on the latter side of a two-part process we'll talk about here in a minute, it dooms itself to being undone? by those who cringe at the thought of social programs, public welfare, and communal well-being. Like Keynesian capitalists and democratic socialists, I agree that the problem is systemic and structural, as opposed to being individual. But those of us informed by Marxian analysis go one step further and say there are two sides to the creation of all our goods and services, and that you can't just alter step two, right, the distribution side. We also have to address step one, the production side. Let's talk about this. Surplus or extra goods and services are produced by a business so that employers have extra money to do things like expand their operation, pay themselves hefty salaries, invest in newer, faster technology, or grace themselves with a nice Christmas bonus. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas to me. For example, a portion of the hours baristas work throughout the week will produce a value equal to the sum of their wages. But baristas produce way more value than they receive in return. And their labor during this portion of the day or the week when they produce surplus value is called surplus labor. In addition to the necessary labor time spent producing the value of their wages and replenishing all the supplies used up in the process of producing coffees and lattes, baristas spend way more of their time at work performing surplus labor that leads to surplus or extra profits that their bosses get to do whatever they want with. But before employers can distribute all this delicious barista-made revenue, as they see fit, it has to be produced. This is the two-part process of the production and distribution of surplus or extra or these new value. Capitalism creates an internal division within every capitalist business and enterprise. The unique capitalist class structure assigns some people to play the role of the employer, and others to play the roles of employee. These roles aren't natural, right? It doesn't have to be this way, but it is how capitalism does it. Of course, some small business owners play the role of both employer and employee, but there's still a division, a minority of people who make all the decisions concerning what the work will be and how the collectively produced profits will be distributed, right? The employee wages and then a majority of people who do the work but are excluded from the important decision-making. This way of organizing relationships in places like Trader Joe's, Marriott, United Airlines, and Home Depot is by definition undemocratic, authoritarian, and exploitative. It structurally concentrates both decision-making power and wealth, 
upwards into the hands of a few, while the labor is performed by the many. And given that the market forces free market capitalists to outcompete each other, literally push competitors out of the market, then why would we expect them to make the moral decision of putting human and environmental well-being first? Because even employers and creditors are market-dependent, meaning that if they don't compete and compete fiercely, their business might shrink and even close up shop. An alternative analysis would be to say that the system is the problem. It's a structural issue that requires transformation of the system as a whole, not just the distribution side. Taxation is, of course, important, but we wouldn't even be talking about taxing billionaires had they never exclusively taken that money in the first place. Democratizing the workplace, something we've talked about a lot in previous episodes, would radically restructure how power and wealth are distributed at our jobs and in our communities. Of course we need to tax the ultra-rich, right? I'm with the democratic socialists on that. U.S. Americans were all in favor of that when the Great Depression of the 1930s hit. And we can do it again. But that money should never have ended up in their private possession in the first place. And having worker-owned, worker-directed co-ops is one response that could radically address the glaring inequality of wealth and power at the micro-level foundation of the economy. If the employer-employee divisions was done away with, and all the workers made the decisions collectively and democratically, just like we say we want to in the political sphere, workers could decide whether they could work weekends, weeknights, and holidays. Workers could decide whether they give themselves raises, invest their money in new technology, or take a lesser yet still livable wage so that they can spend more time with, say, I don't know, their family and friends and community instead of away at work. I could keep going, but you get the picture. And I've talked about the book before, um, but to dive deeper into this idea of democratizing the workplace, I highly recommend starting out with Democracy at Work by Richard Wolff. There are also a bunch of awesome uh, Democracy at Work podcasts you can check out on their website. Beyond the internal hierarchy and exclusion within capitalist businesses, there are other ways in which capitalism structurally generates inequality of wealth and power. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about capitalism's greatest commandment, the endless production of compound growth, the ceaseless accumulation of more and more wealth. It's a commandment imposed upon us that none of us can simply opt out of. Especially in our neoliberal globalized economy today, winners are made at the expense of losers, winner and loser businesses, winner and loser workers, winner and loser entire regions, even winner and loser nations. While individual greed is, of course, one of many factors that contribute to things like poverty, homelessness, hunger, but also things like the mass incarceration of impoverished, predominantly black and Hispanic U.S. Americans, or imperialism, gender oppression, religious exclusion, I mean, the list could go on. What are individual moral choices when our choices are made within an undemocratic and exclusive economy, driven by the need to ceaselessly accumulate wealth. What is morality when 
your survival in the market as a capitalist employer compels you to increase labor productivity at the expense of your workers' well-being? What is morality when your survival in the market as a lender compels you to create conditions where people need or are tempted to use credit or take out loans? What is morality when your survival in the market as a consumer not only forces you to buy products produced by exploited employee labor, but also the cheapest products produced by the most vulnerable of labor forces, increasingly women of color in historically colonized countries? What is morality when individual or national success under capitalism is built upon the disempowerment or flat-out failure of others? Capitalism has failed to solve the most basic problems related to poverty and inequality. The mass suffering in our world today, amidst never-before-seen wealth and luxury, has been solved neither by persuading rich individuals nor by redistributing capitalist wealth. I think it is time we see the problem in a new light. The problem isn't greed. It isn't immorality. The problem is capitalism. And so as Christians, we ask, what might it mean to live faithfully in a globalized capitalist economy which compels everyone to survive and thrive at the expense of others' well-being? If one subscribes to the belief that Christianity should be ultimately concerned with the relational well-being of all God's creation— every individual community and ecosystem, and that capitalism is an economy that pits people against one another, dividing the winners from the losers, then our Christian faith would put us in tension with the values, class structure, and systemic compulsions of capitalism. But throughout this episode, I've tried to suggest two things here, right? And the first thing is that we can't reduce the issue to individual morality— We are not individuated, self-actuated, autonomous, island-like beings. Personally, I believe greed is, of course, part of the problem, if not exacerbated by the deeper problem. Yet, we exist as persons in community, dynamically shaping and being shaped by all things everywhere, in every moment. So, to understand an individual's or even a group's actions, decisions, and choices— we have to also consider the systemic and structural forces at play that are always influencing us, even when we're unaware of them. And the second thing I've wanted to suggest is that taxing the wealthiest elite in the world and redistributing that wealth is a response to something that has already happened. It's a reaction to exploitation. It's a response to the already concentrated wealth and power, which is, of course, incredibly important. But responding to structures that foster and fuel mass inequality, poverty, suffering, and social division is inadequate. What if we take one step further and transform the very foundations upon which they are built? As Christians... In remembrance of the crucified Christ, the one who was executed by the state for organizing the disposable and disempowered working peoples of his day, in resistance to the structures of brutal domination and exclusion, what if we were to seek a revolution not just of individual moral sentiments, but a revolution 
that systemically transformed our places of work from the bottom up. Might we be able to envision an economy, a society where we value people over profits, the beloved creation over the production of absurd wealth, and collective human dignity over the right to privately accumulate capital? I'll leave you with the words of one who gave his life, resisting much more than individual greed. St. Oscar Romero said that a church that doesn't provoke any crises, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed, what gospel is that? Folks, the problem isn't greed. The problem is capitalism.